Human beings crave order and meaning. We invent philosophies, religions, and conspiracy theories in an effort to convince ourselves that all is not chaos. But all pretty much is. If you're lucky enough to have a job, like, for example, making the foreign desk, which enables conversations with people who have held positions of power, you'll hear pretty frequently that at moments of crisis, it basically boils down to a bunch of folks sitting around a table, massaging throbbing temples, and asking each other, what the hell do we do now? For the next three weeks, the foreign desk will meet some of the people who've sat at that table in those moments. We start with the events of 22 Septembers ago in the United States. On September 11, 2001, hijackers associated with Osama bin Laden's Islamist militant group Al-Qaeda seized four aeroplanes. Two were flown into the World Trade Center towers in New York City, one into the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. The other, presumably intended for the White House or the Capitol, crashed in a field in Pennsylvania after passengers attempted to regain control. In total, nearly 3,000 people were killed. The whole world was transfixed by the impossible, appalling spectacle on their televisions. A small group, however, were faced with the daunting task of formulating a response. The staff of US President George W. Bush. How do you tell the president your country is under attack? How do you protect the president when you're not sure what you're protecting him from? And how do you decide what he's going to say to the country and the world? This is the Foreign Desk in the Room. Everyone started running down towards the exits, and there was just a cacophony of sound of our heels hitting that marble floor. You could hear the stress, and some people were crying out as we were running. And so we ran down and the vice president's motorcade was being put in place for him to leave. And that's the first time I had ever seen Secret Service agents run. So we knew that it was very serious. The teacher was conducting a dialogue between the students and the president. He was second grade students. And when the teacher told the students to take out their books, that meant the conversation was over. They were getting their books out to read with the president. And that's when I walked up to him and leaned over and I said, a second plane hit the second tower. America is under attack. And that was all I said to him. I stood back from him so that he couldn't or wouldn't ask me a question. You're listening to The Foreign Desk in the Room. I'm Andrew Muller, and I'm joined first of all from Jaffrey, New Hampshire, by Secretary Andrew Card, who served as Chief of Staff to President George W. Bush from 2001 to 2006. Andrew Card was famously the man who broke the news of a second plane striking the World Trade Center to President Bush during an appearance at the Emma E. Booker Elementary School in Sarasota, Florida. Secretary Card, welcome to the program. First of all, I want to go back to that moment which must have been unfathomably peculiar. This is, of course, the moment where you know there's a second plane, and indeed most of the world knows there's a second plane, but the President of the United States does not. What went through your mind right at that point? Well, once I was told that a second plane hit the other tower at the World Trade Center, I knew that I had to pass the test. Does the president need to know? Yes, the president needs to know. And I thought carefully about what I would say to him. 
He had been told that it appeared a small twin-engine prop plane crashed into one of the towers at the World Trade Center in New York City. That's what he was told before he went into the classroom. So I was then told that it wasn't a small twin-engine prop plane. It was a commercial jetliner. My mind flashed to the fear the passengers on the plane must have had. They had to know it was losing altitude. I don't know why that's where my mind went, but that's where it went. But that was only for a very short period of time because Deb Lauer, who was the acting national security advisor on the trip and the director of the White House Situation Room, came up to me and said, oh, my God, another plane hit the other tower at the World Trade Center. I then thought of three initials, UBL, Osama bin Laden. I knew about Al-Qaeda. I knew about the attacks in the World Trade Center in early 1993. And I knew that this was not a coincidence or an accident. And I did make a decision that the president needed to know. I decided that I would pass on two facts and make one editorial comment. And I would do nothing to invite a question or a dialogue with him because I knew that he was sitting in front of second graders. And I didn't want him to react in any way that would demonstrate either fear or angst. I wanted just to pass on the information and lend then depart. I presumed a boom microphone was hanging over him, so I didn't want to have a conversation in front of everybody. And so I thought about what I would say to him. Believe it or not, I reflected on another moment in history when I was the acting chief of staff to his dad when he was president of the United States and went to Tokyo, Japan, and threw up on the Japanese prime minister. On that day, I decided I was going to be cool, calm, and collected and make sure that the president would be well served, but also make sure the world would be not alarmed. And so I thought, reflected on that moment. I did think of what I would say to the president. I walked in and he did not turn around and look for me when I walked in. He didn't even know I'd entered the room. The teacher was conducting a dialogue between the students and the president. He was second grade students. And when the teacher told the students to take out their books, that meant the conversation was over. They were getting their books out to read with the president. And that's when I walked up to him and leaned over and I said, a second plane hit the second tower. America is under attack. And that was all I said to him. I stood back from him so that he couldn't or wouldn't ask me a question. I was impressed with how he did react to what I said to him. He did nothing to generate fear in those students. He did nothing to demonstrate fear to the world that would have been to the satisfaction of the terrorists around the world. Instead, I think that he contemplated his legitimate burden that he carries because of the oath that he took to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So I, I was very impressed with how he reacted to what I said to him. I was pleased that he did not get up and demonstrate any fear. And he also did not come with me and leave the venue. It allowed me to go back into the holding room and say, get the FBI director on the phone, get a line open to the vice president, get a line open to the White House situation room. Dan Bartlett gets some remarks written for the president. He's going to have to go into a larger auditorium and speak to the guests that were there. And he can't do anything that is not truthful. He's got to be truthful with his words. Don't say anything we do not know to be true. Then the president walked in after he had excused himself from the classroom. And the first thing he said to me when he opened the door and walked into the holding room was get the FBI director on the phone. We could say he's right here, Mr. President. But I, that day, decided my role was to make sure the president was not motivated by emotion, that he was using his own logic and sound thinking to address the challenges that he would have to address that day. So I 
purposely made sure the president was not surrounded by people who were overly emotional in how they were responding to the challenge of the day, kept him cool, calm, and deliberate. And I tried to be an honest broker as he was challenged with many decisions. And I was with, very impressed with his thought process and his demonstration of commitment to keeping his oath and the brutally tough decisions that he had to make. Probably the toughest decision that I watched him acknowledge was he authorized our military to shoot down commercial airliners if they were not complying with FAA radio traffic to land. And it was soon after that that Flight 93 crashed in Pennsylvania. And I admit that some of us wondered if one of our fighter jets had fired a missile at one of the commercial jetliners. So, but I watched the president make a tough decision about making sure that Putin was called and that he didn't do anything to overreact. And I also knew that he had empathy for the pilots that were flying in these jets that were protecting America because he had been an Air National Guard pilot. He said, I can't imagine getting the order to shoot down a commercial jetliner but he gave that order and authorized it to be executed if he needed to be. I want to come back to your your management of the rest of the day shortly, but just to go back to the moment where you told President Bush what had happened, it seems to me there's two things there. There's the, the what you say and the how you say it. In terms of the what you say, did you rehearse any other lines? Were those the first things that popped into your head? Or were there other things you thought about and thought, no, that's too complicated, that's too emotive, that's too alarmist? How fast did you winnow it down to that? I winnowed it down pretty quickly. I didn't think that it would be appropriate for the Secret Service to come in and whisk the president away in front of the second graders and the press because I thought that would have generated fear. The second thing is I didn't want the Secret Service to rush up and lift him up and take him away when others would be wondering if they were in danger too. So I did think about those things. I did not dwell on any of them. I just decided I would pass on this information hopefully let the president digest it and then get things ready for him to be able to make decisions and have them implemented. And obviously leaving the Emma E. Booker School that morning and going back to the airport in Sarasota was a a harrowing trip. The vehicle went very, very fast. We were in the president's limousine called The Beast. And I was on the phone back to D.C. The president was on the phone and he was frustrated that he couldn't reach Secretary Rumsfeld, the Secretary of Defense. It turns out that's when the Pentagon had been hit. And so Secretary Rumsfeld was dealing with that. And then we got to Air Force One and Air Force One, the engines were already running on the plane, something that is a protocol no-no. They're not supposed to turn the engines on until the president's safely on the plane. When I heard the engines running, I said, Mark Tillman, the pilot, must really want to get out of here. And we ran up the gangplank, got on Air Force One. Almost before we could take our seat, the plane was rolling down the runway, getting ready to take off. And it took off almost vertically straight up, went up to a very high altitude, waiting for fighter jets to catch up to us. But my job was to make sure the president was cool, calm, and collected, and that people around him were not generating emotions of fear We wanted him to be stable in his thinking and have his needs met in terms of being able to communicate with the right people at the right time with the information that he wanted to action. 
you obviously knew the president very well and you worked with him very closely. Uh, During that day, that extraordinary odyssey that Air Force One undertook around the United States, did you have just, I guess, passing informal conversations with him? What did you talk about and what was his state of mind? We had a lot of very candid conversations. Number one, he wanted to go back to Washington, D.C., and I telling him, I don't think you want to make that decision right now. But he got increasingly agitated, kind of even yelling at me that I'm the president, we are going back to Washington, D.C. And I'd say, I understand that, but I don't think you want to make that decision right now. Clearly, the Secret Service was in concerns about what was going on in Washington, D.C. The pilot of Air Force One was also concerned about flying back to Andrews Air Force Base or Joint Base Andrews without knowing that the base was secure. So I kept saying, we're not going back to D.C. yet. We'll go back when we can. But he was pretty agitated, and we did have strong conversations. I always tried to be cool, calm, and collected, but he did yell at me a few times. And I just said, I understand your concern, but I think that it's best that we not implement that right now. Let's go to a place where we have good communication, get a better assessment, let the FAA do their job of getting all the flights that were coming into the United States safely on the ground where where they can be. And we're grateful to the Canadians for taking so many of those flights in Newfoundland. But yes, the president and I had a number of candid conversations. We talked about the burden of informing other world leaders and building a coalition. He was thinking about how important it would be that NATO, our allies in NATO, would be informed and pay attention to what was going on. And he was very grateful for the role that Tony Blair was going to be playing with the the British. Do you get the sense that the president and the people around him quite quickly understood what this attack was and what the necessary response was going to be? Were people already talking about Afghanistan on the day? There was no confirmation that it was Osama bin Laden until Mike Morrell, the CIA briefer on the trip, raised it with the president. I knew it was Osama bin Laden. I'm sure the president was Osama bin Laden. But Mike Morrell came up in his communications back to Langley, the CIA headquarters. They presumed it was Osama bin Laden's activities. Yes, we knew about it. And we knew about the role that Afghanistan had played in allowing the terrorists to find safe harbor and do their training. So yes, there was some thought. I think the the greater concern was, were there other attacks that were going to be coming after what had happened in New York City at the Pentagon or in Shanksville, Pennsylvania? And so we wondered whether other targets in America, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago, Houston, Miami. So yes, we were on full alert and we didn't know if there were other terrorist activities that were triggered, whether this was just the first initial attack that would trigger other attacks to come on our homeland. There were people on one who were very emotionally upset and nervous and scared, and I made sure that they didn't have a presence in front of the president and kept them away. And some people were worried about their spouses. And I had friends that died in every single venue of the attack. So... Yes, there was a lot of emotion and people were eager to communicate back home, but we limited the communications on Air Force One to being only that where the president had the priority to use all the communications and that other people did not because we didn't know. uh, We wanted to have access to be able to get to the people we needed to at the Pentagon or the Defense Department, the CIA, the Department of State, and obviously the White House was being evacuated. 
Just finally, and to go back to the moment we came in on where, where you have to walk onto that stage and tell President Bush about the second plane, did you and he ever ever talk about that moment again? Did he ever give his views on how you'd handled that moment? Yes, we've talked several times. I'll tell you that the arguments that we had over going back to Washington, D.C., he got pretty angry with me, and it was literally about a month later or longer where I was with him in the, in the limousine driving to an event, and he said, I want to apologize. And I said, what? He said, well, I was really tough on you. I want to apologize. And I said, what are you talking about? He says, on Air Force One. And even then I said, what do you mean? He says, on 9-11, where I kept yelling at you that we should go back to Washington, D.C., and you were doing exactly the right thing to say, let's wait until we learn more and can have good communications and do it. So he apologized. That lingered with him for a very long time. And I was grateful for the apology, but I also felt as if I was doing my job to help him do his job. And we've talked about it. The emotions were very, very real. When we saw the the World Trade Center pancaking down after having watched people jump from the building. And there were tears and prayers and very sobering conversations on Air Force One as we're winging our way back to Washington, D.C. And those images are seared in our memory. And I worked for President Reagan, President George H.W. Bush, and President George W. Bush. My most memorable day was September 14th, 2001. That was the Friday after the attacks. And that's where the president, number one, told the FBI to prevent the next attack. Number two, he said to the cabinet, while we were at war, we have a job of governing to do. And he went over all of the details of governing a country in every aspect that you could imagine with the members of the cabinet. Then we went to the National Cathedral and prayed for a nation, prayed for the world, and recognized a higher power and the obligations we have to be good and find justice and do our job. And then going to New York City to ground zero and hearing people chanting USA, USA, while they were wearing Canadian flags on the uniforms or Japanese flags on the uniforms. And the rescue workers were there to try to help find the people that were trapped because of the towers having collapsed. And then the strong emotions of hearing the president get up and speak through a bullhorn when somebody yells out, I can't hear you, I can't hear you. And he responds, I can hear you and the whole world will hear us. And learning that the Congress had passed virtually unanimously, there was only one dissenting vote to go to war against the war on terror. And Past both the House and the Senate. And then meeting with family members of people who were missing down at ground zero and seeing the hope that they had that their loved one would make it out, the expectation that there might be a problem, the sobering reality that some had died, and the president being asked, don't ever forget, don't ever forget my son, don't ever forget my wife, don't ever forget my husband. It was just so emotional. And, and I remember the, the mother of George Howard gave the president a badge and said, this is my son's badge. His name is George Howard. Don't ever forget him. And the president, with tears streaming down his cheeks, took that badge and said, Mrs. Howard, you don't have to worry about me. I will never forget George Howard. And then with tears streaming down all the cheeks of the people around that conversation, 
We get in the limousine to leave the Jacob Javits Center in New York City. And I remember him pulling the badge out of his pocket. It was badge number 1012. And he shut his eyes. I believe he prayed. Tears streamed down his cheeks. He squeezed it and then just put it in his pocket, carried that badge with him for the rest of his presidency. So, yes, September 11th, 2001 required tremendous leadership from a president and George W. Bush gave it. Secretary Andrew Card, thank you very much for joining us here on the Foreign Desk. You're listening to the first episode of this series of The Foreign Desk in the Room. And joining me now from Fort Worth, Texas, is Gordon Jondro, now Managing Director of Communications at American Airlines. On September 11th, 2001, Gordon was the White House Assistant Press Secretary. Gordon, first of all, we've spoken already to Chief of Staff Andrew Card about that moment when you all understood that a second plane had hit the World Trade Center. What do you recall of that moment? Yes, I was in the back of the classroom with the press pool when Andy came in to tell the president uh, that we were under attack. I had actually been in the hold room with Andy beforehand and knew what he was going to do and what had happened and that things would be moving very quickly from that moment forward. Well, things did indeed move quickly. First of all, they moved quickly into the motorcade back to Air Force One. Do you recall anything of that particular car journey? Were there conversations going on among the staff and among the entourage? Oh, absolutely. First of all, that was the fastest motorcade I've ever been in in my entire life. We must have been going 80, 90 miles an hour down the highway to get to Air Force One. I was traveling with the press pool, so certainly everyone was on the phone. Again, this was really uh, 2001, so there wasn't a whole lot of texting or emailing going on at that point from phones. So everyone was calling in to their offices. Their offices were calling the journalists, trying to find out what was going on with the president. I had a uh, radio on in an earpiece, you know, much like the Secret Service, and was hearing the activity that was going on, that we would be loading up the plane very quickly. The plane famously took off very quickly and very steeply. And when Air Force One did lift off from Sarasota, did you have any idea where it was going? At that point, when we took off, I thought we might be going back to the White House. There was a possibility. But I have to tell you that takeoff was like something out of the movie Independence Day. I mean, literally, the lamps were shaking, the chairs, the tables were shaking. The flight attendants came around, and they never tell you to fasten your seatbelt on Air Force One, but they all came around and said, everyone buckle in. What information did you have at that point about what had happened? You know, the the president and Andy Card and the intelligence briefer on board that day, Mike Morrell, who would later go on to be acting CIA director, were getting information that this was likely al-Qaeda. Of course, I'd never heard of Al-Qaeda at that point. I was, I think, 24, 25 years old and just wasn't familiar. They were familiar because of the history that Al-Qaeda had with the attacks in, in Yemen and Africa and elsewhere. So it was becoming clear as the morning went on that it was obviously a coordinated attack. Um, but there were also so many rumors about the State Department that there was a car bomb or that a plane had crashed into the president's ranch in Texas. It was just a a whole lot of rumors and 
information that just couldn't be validated that was happening. For you personally, how safe or otherwise did you feel where you were? I describe it as being in the safest place in the world and the most dangerous place in the world simultaneously. We rocketed off from Sarasota, Florida, and we ended up turning over the Gulf of Mexico, climbing to, I think, over 40,000 feet so that a fighter escort could meet us from the nearest Air Force base. We circled around for a while because there were, again, additional rumors that Air Force One was a target. Of course, Air Force One is always a target. So, again, you're in the safest place in the world because of the U.S. military and the Secret Service, but also the most dangerous because it's a target. And on that plane, and for the the benefit of our many listeners who've never been aboard Air Force One and don't know how divided up or segregated the various departments aboard are, were you aware of the conversations that were going on at all in and around the president about not just where to take him on that day and how he should respond today, but maybe about how the United States should respond to this further along? Sure. I The president's office is up front, and then there's a senior staff conference room, a senior staff cabin, and then in the back is the Secret Service detail and the press pool. And so I was lingering around up front, although, again, a junior aide at that time in his early 20s, just trying to stay out of the way, but gather information so I could do my job. And so, yes, was beginning to piece together that while the president wanted to return to the White House, the Secret Service and military were just not going to allow that to happen, given all the unknowns. And the fact then, then the White House got evacuated. So we're, we're getting all this information sort of piecemeal. The communications on board Air Force One at that time in 2001 really weren't that great. And of course, they've since been upgraded because of 9-11. And so, yes, was beginning to piece together information that this was a terrorist attack And then from the logistics standpoint, that we would not be going back to Washington and they would let us know as soon as they'd picked a location. In and among those conversations you described, did you personally have any kind of conversation with President Bush at any point that day? Sure. Spoke to him a few times, you know, that day. And I have to say he was the most reassuring figure on board the plane. Everyone was cool and doing their job and was professional, but he was he was especially reassuring to everyone because he could recognize that not only did we have a job to do, but that we were also all thinking about our families and what was going to happen. But specifically amid those conversations, can you recall what you actually talked to him about? I'm, I'm not even sure where I'd begin to imagine what you could possibly say to somebody in his position on a day like that. Well, I'll just tell you one story. Somehow he slipped past me and got to the press cabin without anyone knowing it. And he went back to talk to him. And then the next time I saw him, he's coming back into the staff cabin. And he said, I just talked to the press. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> what, what did you say? And he said, don't worry, don't worry. It was off the record. I just went back to check on everybody. So look, there were moments of in a difficult day, of course, there were some moments of levity. 
There's a moment, well, it may have been a moment of extremely bleak levity, but it definitely pertains to your job, which was that quite a lot of the press pool, I think I'm right in saying, were left on the tarmac in Louisiana at one point during Air Force One's odyssey that day. How did you go about explaining that to the press who've just been parked in the middle of nowhere and kicked off the biggest story they're ever going to cover? Yes. When we were leaving Louisiana, we weren't quite sure where we were going to go. And if we were going to go to a secure location, there needed to be less people on board Air Force One because transportation on the ground could be limited and facilities could be limited. So some were advocating that the entire press pool be removed from the plane. I told Andy Card that we need an independent press. We need a third party to validate that the president is still alive and in charge and what he's saying is accurate. And so Andy said, okay, so how many seats do you need? And I just made up a number. I said, I need five. And he said, okay, go pick the five. And you got to tell the rest that we'll fly them back to D.C. separately. And those ones who you had to tell were being flown back to D.C. separately. uh, How equably did they receive that news? Not well. (laughs) It was not a good conversation. I will say I'd known them all for a while. I still know them today, and we uh, have very professional and friendly relationships today, but it was pretty rough for that 24 hours. Uh, But they understood. They eventually understood. I also think, yes, they were getting kicked off the biggest story, but there was also the personal element of, I'm in Louisiana at this Air Force base. What is going to happen to me? Because I, you know, as much as I assured them that we'd fly them back to Washington, It's like, you know, when Air Force One leaves, everyone else is left behind. And sometimes (laughs) things don't happen quite like clockwork. They were lucky, though, that there were a couple of congressmen and some other staff members who were also asked to leave the plane to reduce our footprint. And so they were able to tag along with them and were, were flown back to Washington just a couple hours later. Just finally, I'm curious as to what the end of a day like that is like. Can you recall the first moment out the other side of this at which perhaps you felt like your work was done, you were alone, you had an amount of time to think about what you'd all been through? Yeah, it was after the president's address to the nation. And we left the Oval Office. And then I remember going back into the press secretary's office, sitting on a couch and just finally feeling a little bit relieved that the day was over, but then sort of beginning to think, gosh, what do we do tomorrow? But it really wasn't until a few days later at the National Cathedral when the president was speaking at the uh, memorial service that it really, my adrenaline finally ran out And I just really had a difficult moment recognizing what had just gone on these last few days. But then you have to pull it together. And we flew to ground zero. And that was really at the end of that week, that Friday, that the president flew off to Camp David on a small plane. And the staff was on the larger Air Force One flying back to Washington. And the flight attendants came around, all Air Force, and they said, wait, would anyone like a drink? (laughs) And I would like a beer. (laughs) And it was really that Friday. It had been a just a unbelievable, difficult week. So it's not the end of 9-11. It was really 72 hours on before anyone could catch their breath.
Gordon Jondro, thank you for joining us. That was Gordon Jondro, Managing Director of Communications at American Airlines and former White House Assistant Press Secretary. This is The Foreign Desk. You're listening to The Foreign Desk in the Room. And joining me here in the studio is Charity Wallace, founder and president of Wallace Global Impact, who formerly served as chief of staff to former First Lady Laura Bush from 2009 to 2010. Charity, first of all, tell us a bit about what your role was at the White House on September 11th, 2001. I was a trip coordinator in presidential advance. So essentially, that is one of the individuals, and it's sort of a junior staffer, if you will, who collaborates with the advance team, but also with the schedulers, the communications office, and all of the other different offices. So we sort of coordinate the trips. The last thing I produced was the president's schedule. And actually, I was the trip coordinator for September 11th. So he was in Florida that day, and I was responsible for coordinating that trip. With the president in Sarasota on that day, you you go to work at the White House that morning. Do you have a recollection of what you were expecting your day to be like? Yes. You know, it's interesting. I walked in that morning and commented on how beautiful the day was. There was not a cloud in the sky. It was a beautiful blue day that had no humidity, which was for a Californian, it was a break for me. And I loved it. Washington, D.C. can be very humid. And I walked in and I knew that I would be talking to a number of different advanced teams planning for trips or events that were taking place in two to three days. So I was responsible for coordinating those trips. And again, I knew I had a schedule of calls that I was going to be making and producing the schedule for the president in two to three days. So what do you recall of your the beginnings of your understanding of what had happened, first of all, in New York City? Sure. So I was walking back into the office and I saw the television of one of the towers on fire. And someone said a plane had flown into one of the World Trade Centers. And I stopped a little bit to say, what does that mean? And then went back to my desk and watched the second plane fly in. And as people were reporting, they said it was a small Cessna. You know, that's sort of the original reports. But I had been to the World Trade Center a number of times. My father worked in New York. I knew the scale of the buildings, and I also knew the scale of planes. And so when I saw the second plane fly in, I knew something was wrong. In fact, I actually gathered all of my things to leave the office because I just had a sense with two planes going, this was not an accident. Again, it was such a beautiful day. It was not some weather-related occurrence. So I told my colleagues, I think we need to leave. But I was instructed to stay in my seat until the Secret Service told us what to do. I assume that at the White House of all places, understanding of the severity of the incident must have spread very quickly throughout the building. Everybody must have understood that the United States was under attack. Did you get a sense of that reaction spreading throughout the White House? You know, I think there was still confusion, frankly. When the second plane hit the second tower, there was still confusion. And I think there was a sense of something's wrong, but they didn't know exactly what it was. There's never been anything like it. And so it was sort of hard, if you think back now, that's something that we can think of. And it doesn't seem odd that it was a attack. But at the time, it just was something we couldn't have imagined. And so I think there were starting to be rumblings of people feeling uncomfortable, but not a sense of what should we do? And what was the next thing that was going to happen? We found out at the White House 
on CNN that we were being evacuated. We hadn't had an alert system put in place yet for the whole White House to be alerted that there was an evacuation taking place. So as soon as that happened, I was already ready to leave. I jumped up and started to run out of the office, and the Secret Service was running into our office to alert us, you need to leave the building. And that's when everyone started running down towards the exits. And there was just a cacophony of sound of our heels hitting that marble floor. You could hear the stress and some people were crying out as we were running. And so when we took off running, I was in what's called the executive office building and it's across the street from the West Wing. And so we ran down and the vice president's motorcade was being put in place for him to leave. And that's the first time I had ever seen Secret Service agents run. And then we which, knew... Which I'm guessing is usually a bad sign. It's right? a terrible sign. So we knew that it was very serious. There's something called the counter-assault team, and they, they have automatic rifles that were always covered. And at that point, they were not covered. They were running with their rifles out and just screaming for us to run for our lives. And so as the day progresses, and I, I don't know, and obviously you can tell us how possible it was, I guess, to make phone calls in Washington at that point to keep up with what was going on, because it's not long after this that, I mean, I can remember watching the TV coverage in London and it cuts sure. to that pall of smoke rising from the Pentagon. What was your point of understanding that Washington had been hit as well? So as we were running out, they opened the gates where the cars typically come in because we would go in and out of turnstiles, but it slowed the evacuation down for us to go through. So they just opened up the gates. And as they did, they looked at all of the women, most of whom had heels on and said, take your shoes off and run for your life. And I actually stopped because it was so jarring. And I said, well, where are we supposed to go? And they said, get as far away from here as you can. And at that point, I called my family who were in California. And it was just about six, I guess, in the morning. And I left a voice message on their machine and told them, you know, we're evacuating. But my only cell phone that was working was my Los Angeles cell phone number. My Washington, D.C. number was not working because all the lines had gone dead. But as we were running towards my car, I had a colleague run with me towards my car. We saw the smoke go up at the Pentagon. So we were already in the state of evacuation. We knew that D.C. was a target. And then we saw this you know, smoke go up. There was actually a plane as we were evacuating the White House. A plane was turning over head of the White House, and it was a passenger plane. And there was a Secret Service agent on the sideboard of a Suburban with binoculars looking up, screaming, run, run, run. And we don't know if that was the plane that went into the Pentagon or if it was some other plane, but that was the terror that all of us felt. And my family was able to call me back, but they were unclear about what was happening because they were asleep. And I said, there's planes flying into buildings. We're being evacuated. I'm running to my car. And then the line went dead. So it was a very scary day. I finally, I got into my car and went to my home in Arlington, which is just across the river, and watched the towers fall. And honestly wanted to pack up a bag and drive across the country back home to California, but felt like I should stay. When were you next able to go back into work at the White House? The next morning. So we were called back in. I was supposed to be at my desk at 8 in the morning. My boss actually was on Air Force One that day. So he had us all come back in. And it was very surreal walking back into the White House because it's as if time had stopped when we all evacuated. There were mail carts in the middle of the hallways. Our 
computers were still really on. They literally just dropped what they, they literally were doing. just right. dropped what they did. You know, my chair was pushed back because I jumped up out of my chair and took off running. So everything was as if it had just stopped in time. The television was still on. My computer was still on. There were papers all over my desk. It was a little bit terrifying to come back into the office because you just sort of didn't know if something else was going to happen. And that feeling lasted quite a while. But there was also a sense of resolve about us wanting to stay and serve. It was our responsibility as a team, as the president and his team, to try to keep the country safe. So whatever we did, we were always cognizant that we had to be on guard, that we had to be working very, very hard in every area that we were responsible for. And so I think there was a sense of responsibility, obligation, and service that I think permeated the White House. And I was grateful to have a president that I believed in. He was a great leader, I think, at the time and the kind of the right leader at the time. You said earlier that the events of September 11th affected your career trajectory, or at least as you had planned it. In what kind of way did public service feel like more of a commitment to you after that? It did. You know, I remember on September 11th, like I said, I wanted to go home. I wanted to drive across the country. I was afraid and I was lonely and I was young, but I felt a sense of duty. And I really, I have a faith and I felt like I needed to go from fear to faith, frankly. And so I had planned to leave the White House after a year of this amazing experience and go back to California. But I ended up staying for all eight years. I had six different jobs at the White House. I was able to travel to over 70 countries with the First Lady and the President and really see amazing women and other things that I worked on through the policies that we put into place. So it changed the trajectory of my career. I ended up working for the Bushes for 16 years. I ended up as Laura Bush's chief of staff and launching their global women's initiatives at the Bush Institute. But had I not stayed, I know that my life would have been very different. And I did feel that having that kind of experience where you face that you could have passed that day, there's just a sense of strong purpose in your life. And I felt that strongly that day. And it really did change the trajectory of my career. Charity Wallace, thank you for joining us. That was Charity Wallace, former chief of staff to Laura Bush and president of Wallace Global Impact. You're listening to The Foreign Desk in the Room, and joining me now from Maryland is Nick Trotter, a retired U.S. Secret Service Assistant Director for the Office of Protective Operations, who, on September 11, 2001, was assigned as the Assistant Special Agent in charge at the Presidential Protective Division. Nick, first of all, the morning of September 11, 2001, you get up, go to work. Presumably you think this is going to be just another day. Yeah, I'm sure that if Hollywood was to script it, it it would be a beautiful sunny day, which I recall it was. At the time, I was the assistant special agent in charge to the Presidential Protective Division, signed to the president. And in addition to the president, I was responsible for the first family. And I was what we referred to as the working supervisor that day at the White House, waiting for the president to return. For whatever reason, and I don't know why, I had actually come in very early as I normally would to actually get a workout in. Even though I was in schedule for the afternoon, I'm not sure what brought me there that early, but I was uh, working out at one of the fitness centers and I had the sports network on ESPN 
and there was an interruption and there was a plane went into the towers. I thought extremely, you know, that's odd. It's a clear day, not a cloud in the sky. And I do remember from U.S. history and reading that in the 1940s, a small single engine went into the Empire State Building, but this seemed different. So I knew something was up, and I actually went to the phone and called my parents, who were still living in New York. And while I was on the phone with my mother, the second plane struck, and I knew we were under attack. I hung up, I changed quickly, and I immediately teamed up with the special agent in charge, Mr. Truscott. I knew that the first lady, Laura Bush, was at the U.S. Capitol. And then the decision was made that we had to evacuate the first lady. So the team that was with her evacuated her. And I wasn't serving any purpose at the White House. So I went immediately, grabbed a few agents, and we made a decision to get over to her. At that moment, though, I received an alert that there were six still unidentified planes that were still flying. And it was at that time, as I was trying to leave the White House, so you could imagine the chaos in the streets, is when I don't know if I actually heard the explosion at the Pentagon, but I saw the smoke. I didn't know the Pentagon was hit. And I assumed that there's multiple attacks. I'm sure the Secret Service put themselves through any number of contingency plans for all sorts of scenarios and situations, but had you rehearsed anything remotely comparable to this beforehand? So the Secret Service trains and the agents on the president's detail, the vice president's detail, they're there for one purpose, as I always used to instruct the agents. They're there to evacuate, to cover and evacuate. So the scenarios that we do are medical, and tactical. You know, are they specifically doing this, you know, 9-11 type scenario? I don't recall, but in 1992, don't quote me the year, but I know I'm close to it because I was there. There was a single engine plane that landed. President Clinton was not in residence, but it landed on the south lawn of the White House and it crashed into a tree. So the scenarios are those types of things, but the basic is to cover and evacuate no matter where you are, whether you're on the streets of Fifth Avenue or you're in in route to Buckingham Palace and something happens, it's to evacuate. It's to cover the protectees and to get out of the area. So at what point on the day did you get to where the First Lady was? And at that point, what sort of conversations is is she interested in having? Because obviously she occupies the position of being a very public figure, but she is also at that point a wife and a mother who must be absolutely terrified for her family. Yes, absolutely. All of the above. So what, when I had left the White House, she was already being evacuated from the Capitol and we had made a decision to bring her to Secret Service headquarters, which is somewhat in the middle, a nondescript location. It was quick. It was easy. When we met up, she had those same concerns. She had been told where the president was and the president was safe. And the questions were, you know, Nikki, where are the girls? Barbara, she was a student at Yale University, and that's in New Haven, Connecticut pretty far from the Twin Towers, but 
it's in the tri-state area in that region of New York. Jenna Bush was at the University of Texas. And the Secret Service agents that were assigned to them evacuated them and brought them to safe locations. And again, telephone service was down. So we were able to ensure the First Lady and also communicate the First Lady and the daughters uh, via messaging between us and the agents. We were able to communicate. And it was amazing that in the middle of all of this, she's asking, well, how's your family? Where are they? Are they safe? And, you know, it, it's emotional, but it, you know, it's like <laughs> you've got so much to process. But again, she did get into all of that. And then there was a concern of when am I going back to the White House? When's the president coming back? During that period, though, or however many hours it was you were at the Secret Service headquarters, what were you actually doing? Was it just a question of trying to gather information? Were you able to gather information? And again, this is telecommunications of 20 years ago, and I suppose everybody in the United States is trying to make mobile phone calls. How did you spend that time? Right. So one of the things we did was we had brought down to the location in the conference rooms that she there was only, you know, like two staff people with her. And the director of the Secret Service brought down some TVs so that the First Lady can at least monitor the news that was publicly put out there. And myself and her team, we were mostly, I spent most of my time getting updates with my colleague who was with the president We were also in touch with the activities and the whereabouts of Vice President Cheney, who had come down to the White House. So at times I would go into the room and update the First Lady. And she was, again, asking not so much anymore of the daughters because she knew they were safe, but she started asking questions about our own families. You know, were there any agents injured? Do we know anything more of who did this? because there was all this information. And you can imagine the amount of misinformation. There were, you know, allegedly planes targeting for Camp David. And there was information that a plane had landed at Camp David and crashed there. So there was all of this fog of information that we couldn't keep up with. And it was trying to figure out what was real, what wasn't. Nick Trotter, thank you. That was Nick Trotter, former U.S. Secret Service Assistant Director for the Office of Protective Operations. This is the Foreign Desk in the Room, and joining me now from Washington, D.C., is Admiral Deborah Lower, a retired American naval officer who served as director of the White House Situation Room from 2001 to 2003. Admiral, first of all, do you have a particular recollection of of how September 11th, 2001 started out? Well, as you know, I was traveling with the president that day. We actually began our travel on the 10th. But on the 11th, this was a domestic visit that the president was making to an elementary school in Sarasota, Florida. Earlier in the morning, about 8 a.m., the CIA briefer and I briefed the president with morning issues to make sure that he was prepared for his role as president nationally and internationally. It had nothing to do with the domestic trip, of course. And then on the uh, motorcade en route to the elementary school, 
is where I first learned that an attack had occurred on one of the World Trade Center towers. That was at 8.48 a.m. And a few minutes before 9, when the motorcade stopped, I approached the president and his chief of staff, Andrew Card, and briefed them of this incident that had occurred in New York City. Then we proceeded with the rest of the day, and it was at 9.03 when I was in a room just next to where the president was located as he was beginning his morning meeting with the children and the teachers and parents in that elementary school, that I was in the room next door and watching the television that was showing the news broadcast by, I think, one of our major networks. And I was also on the telephone with my duty officer at the White House. And I watched on television as many Americans here in the States and many other individuals around the world saw the second aircraft impact into the second World Trade Center tower. So that's when I knew immediately what was happening, that this was an incredibly serious event that was affecting all of us, not just in the States, but around the world. This was a significant event. I then went into the classroom that was just next door and met with uh, Chief of Staff, Andy Cart, and he then passed information that I gave to him to the president. I want to go back, first of all, to the first plane and that conversation you had with President Bush and his chief of staff, Andy Card. That first conversation, was the assumption among all of you that this must be an accident? Was there any inkling that this might be something more sinister? Well, I'm going to go back even further than that. My job was to vet information before it was given to the president and to make a decision on how important that information was. And so in the Situation Room, and I as a director, I would receive hundreds of pieces of information every day that I had to evaluate. Is this important enough to pass along to the President of the United States? And that morning, when I had the information of an aircraft that impacted into one of the World Trade Center towers, it was very unclear at that point And my assessment was, we don't know anything about the weather in New York. We don't know anything about the aircraft. We don't know anything about the pilot. We have very, very little information. And since there was very little known, my decision was to tell the president exactly what I knew. And I said exactly those things to the president and his chief of staff when I briefed him on that first incident. I also indicated to the president that we would gather more information. And so I was off attempting to find out as much as I possibly could over the telephone communication with my staff in the White House Situation Room. What could we find? And so that's what we knew. And we knew nothing more than that. The real information came forward when, again, all of us in the States and around the world saw that second aircraft impact into the second tower. That second aircraft is, of course, the moment that changes everything. It prompts Andrew Card's famous walk onto the stage in front of that class to tell President Bush that there was another aircraft. And then that bolt back to the airport and that extraordinary odyssey that Air Force One embarked on the rest of that day, which I'm sure you remember well. But do you recall what was the next conversation you had with President Bush after you all understood that there were at least two planes and that the country was under attack? Well, there were actually multiple conversations that proceeded throughout the day. 
the very next conversation that I had with the president in his cabin on Air Force One with Andrew Card, Ari Fleischer, in that conversation was basically we need to gather more information. And at that point, Ari and Andrew Card, they were gathering information by phone. I was gathering more intelligence-related information from the White House Situation Room. We were still on the ground in Sarasota, and we were briefing the president at that time. So there was somewhere closer to 10 o'clock in the morning. That's what we were doing. We were discussing gathering information and making sure we presented the president with every bit of information we could. What kind of questions at that early stage do you remember President Bush asking? He obviously would have understood that whatever he said or did next, the world was going to pay a great deal of attention to. Well, actually, again, we were in the information gathering mode and the impetus at that time was to return to Washington. So again, those first meetings with the president were, let's get back to Washington, D.C., And that was the president's total focus, to get back to truly the seat of government and the seat of intelligence where he could be briefed by, you know, a significant number of other members in his administration. And just finally, what do you recall of President Bush's general demeanour during this period? This obviously is an event that comes as a great shock well to literally everybody alive at that point, but he is the person who finds himself suddenly faced with having to make a a range of decisions the likes of which he cannot have envisaged. Well, I think you're absolutely correct. It was a very heavy responsibility. President Bush He was very focused and very intent on finding out what the source was, uh, but very, very focused. I can say that he was he was intense. He was focused. And every time I engaged with him, especially during that first six weeks, the intensity was there. And for all of you who were working in and around him at that point, was there any sense of fear for your own personal safety? Obviously, there was discussion on the day that the White House or the Capitol, perhaps even Air Force One, might have been targets. Oh, there was certainly on 9-11, there was a lot of fear and concern, as you point out, on many levels. Once back in Washington, D.C., I think the fear that we were experiencing was not fear of a terrorist attack. It was the anthrax issue that came about just weeks after 9-11. And that certainly sent emotional shockwaves through the entire Washington, D.C. and metro area. That was where people were concerned. It was anthrax. And then there was a a sniper, the D.C. sniper that happened. So it was a mix of events that was causing significant unrest. Admiral Deborah Lower, thank you very much for joining us here on the Foreign Desk. That's it for this episode of the Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week with the next episode of the Foreign Desk in the Room, in which we'll be speaking to some of the people who helped manage the release of Nelson Mandela from prison and the beginnings of South Africa's transition from apartheid. And look out for the Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces the Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact the Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.